When I whet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. Welcome back to episode 190 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. As of late, I've been working pretty hard over here in the background, uh, trying to work on a couple of different things that I want to put in place to upgrade the podcast and to provide more value to the listener. One of those things is I have uh, written two handbooks, and those handbooks are the Academy of Liberation Book One, and the Academy of Liberation Book 2. So to keep it real simple, what they are basically, the Academy of Liberation is dedicated to the liberation of the mind on an individual basis. I have just reached the five-year mark of this podcast, and I'm pretty close. This is episode 190, so I'm pretty close to my 200th episode. The one thing I do not want to do on this podcast is become repetitive and just kind of keep speaking on the same exact points over and over again because anybody will get tired of hearing that. Of course, some or many of the points that you know, you're know you going to bring up when you, you get into philosophy and thinking and right speech and the right path, you're going to bring up a lot of the same points. But one of the things that I strive to do is, is to try to keep it fresh, try to keep it a little bit funny, and at the same time earn your time uh, listening to me because of the fact that you're investing time listening to this podcast. I have to provide value to you so that, you know, you get something from it and not just a waste of time. So I was thinking to myself, what is it that is lacking in the podcast or what is it that I can add to it to give it again, more value? And I noticed that as I go to do my podcast, a lot of times I do show notes and I start writing an outline for the episode, which I usually stay on track for like 60% of it and the other 40% I pretty much improvise. But as I was writing it out, I noticed the same patterns that I, I, I'm talking about the same topics and the same subjects. So, which is cool. I mean, because I, I am very diverse. I don't just talk about stoicism or I don't just talk about Buddhism. I mean, I kind of integrate a whole lot of different things, which keeps it really fresh and interesting. However, I notice certain chords that I strike on every episode, really. So what I ended up doing, I said to myself, what would be a good way of actually documenting this down so that it could be kind of like a structured framework or scaffolding to build your uh, philosophical thinking on? And I said to myself, let me do this. What I'm going to do is I actually came up with uh, this academy or the Academy of Liberation, because that's a big topic for me. You know, liberation and immortality are huge deals for me because that's really one of the essences that uh, you need to be aware of as you go through this life. So when I say liberation, I mean liberation from this matrix system, liberation from the fear of death, liberation from fear in general, because that's really what is being promulgated right now everywhere that you look. You'll see Tucker Carlson, although Tucker Carlson is cool, I dig him, 
but you know, he's, he's putting this fear out there with the social credit scores and just on and on and on how, uh, you know, how death is waiting for us around every corner. And I'm not saying that, that that's not the case. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about it because yes, of course, if you're a thinking man, you're going to think on these things because you have a family, you have people that you love and, you know, you, you're going to think on these issues, even if not for yourself, but for your loved ones and your families, you're going to think to yourself, wow, you know, what can I do? So there's two answers to that. One, what, short and simple answer is what is there that I can do? There's really nothing that you can do because if you look at it from a stoic approach, this is something that you have no control over. So that's plain and simple, but that's answer number one. Answer number two is yes, again, from the stoic perspective, there is something that you can do. Because the one thing that you do have control over is yourself. You know, if you go through the book Meditations, Marcus Aurelius Meditations, you know, you get that off from any Stoic reading. You know, you have control over the self. And and uh, that's the one thing that has the biggest dividend of all things because of the fact that I've noticed in my life, um, I'm six, actually 63 now, but I've noticed in my life that from a very young age, it's always been fear that's been pounded down into us. So, it's, you know, it's been in my lifetime, well, even prior to my lifetime, it was war after World War II, you know, the Russians have the nuclear bomb. I can remember being, you know, in PS 38 in, in Brooklyn and PS is public school, uh, PS 261 and IS 293, that's intermediate school, uh, Fort Hamilton High School and whatever, but I can remember being back in a PS 261. Actually, I was in grade school, probably second or third grade. And the siren would go off and it would be, um, I forget exactly what the, the, the word they had, but it was a practice. So you had to get under your desk and hold your book over your head and hold your breath and everything like that. Because, you know, we were afraid of a, a nuclear war that Russia was going to shoot a ballistic missiles over, you know, atomic bombs over at us and, you know, and going to blow up, you know, the whole United States or, or, you know, all the major cities. So they were pumping fear into us at that point. And then shortly after that, it was just so, so much fear, you know, shortly after that, it was like the Middle East and the Taliban are going to come after us and they're going to poison the water and all of these different things like that. And they're going to send terrorisms to take everything down. I'm not even going to speak on, 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 on World Trade Center, none of that stuff, 9-11. I'm not even going to talk about that. As I said, I'm so shadow banned, so I'm going to leave that one alone. And now it's like China and Russia and the war in Ukraine. And it's just fear upon fear upon fear, which I have absolutely no control over. Neither does anyone really. Uh, no working class person, no normal person really has that. We we can watch the gears turning and the wheels turning round and round, but there's nothing really we can do about it. But again, the one thing we can do is handle ourselves and have control over the way we think about it and the way our environment is affecting us directly. So what I mean by that is maintaining a positive outlook on life, taking the right steps that you need to take, to improve yourself, to, to, to take care of your family, to pay your bills, and to do what God has instructed us to do because God is the one that is running this whole thing. And that's why I have faith because I know at some point these evil men, there's, there's only so much that they can get away with until they get to that uh, point where it they just go over the line, you know, and they reach that uh, that point where they just... It's, it's, again, it's, it's ridiculous. So again, I'm going to leave that alone. 
But we have control over ourselves in, in, in the way we think because the real imprisonment comes actually the imprisonment of the mind. And I heard a quote somewhere, I forget exactly where I heard it, but the quote was, one leash controls a thousand necks. And I'll repeat that. One leash controlling a thousand necks. And what is that leash? That leash is fear. Okay. And by implementing the fear, they have you in a state where you're actually controlling yourself. I remember playing basketball in Brooklyn. If a guy didn't have many skills and you were guarding him, they would call him a self-check. Ah, oh, don't bother. Leave him alone. He's a self-check. In other words, he's not even going to be able to make a basket because he's he's defending against his own self. He's unable to score. He's unable to do anything. So by putting you in fear, you're actually in a state of being a self-check where you, you, you're just useless. You're useless to yourself, your family, and you're useless. You know, you're a useless drone, you know, subjecting yourself to this fear. So there's there's some negativity rolled into that, but you know how this podcast is. So I said to myself, what would be something that could move us in the right direction? So I said, uh, the Academy of Liberation, liberating us from basically from fear, okay, which is the control mechanism. So I actually did write it. It took me a few days. I put a lot of work into it. I believe one of them is 30 pages and the other one is like 15 PDFs. I have them in PDF format and I have it in MP3 format. So I have the Academy of Liberation Handbook 1 and the Academy of Liberation Handbook number 2. So if you are interested in reading them, and what it is is a lot of the topics that I cover in the podcast, but in handbook format. And just yeah, shoot me an email at alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. I now have established a Twitter account, which is alphamalebuddh2. I'll repeat, my Twitter is alphamalebuddh2. And one of the reasons I established, or it's actually an old Twitter account that, that I established, I think, in 2018, but I never really messed with it that much. But one of the reasons I re-engaged it was I was on Instagram, and I tried to hit two or three hashtags. I put out a, a little meme, uh, which is kind of cool. If you go onto my Instagram, which is off of my Buddhist, you'll see it on there. But I went to hit a, a couple of hashtags, and it's just shadow banned. I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous. I I have a backup. Instagram, which is Alpha Male Buddhist Podcast, and uh, I want to do hashtags again, and it was blocked, but I did it this morning. Today is April 15th, 2023. It is a Saturday. I went to uh, hit a couple of hashtags and actually did reach out there, so, which is kind of cool, but that's my uh, backup Instagram, which is Alpha Male Buddhist Podcast. So... I said, let me find a way to establish some type of framework or scaffolding on which, you know, you can build your own philosophical path to immortality or enlightenment or, or self-realization, as it were. And uh, I just put it all down in black and white. I, I worked really hard on it. I, I put a lot of information. I put my heart and soul into it. So, again, uh, reach out to me and I can actually email you the PDF you can reach out to my uh, Instagram. You can reach out to my Twitter or my email directly. I also have a, a, a Telegram account. So you, there's a number of ways that you can reach out to me. 
and I can send it over to you. I have it in MP3 format where you can, and if I do send a PDF, I will also send, I'll attach also the MP3 so you can listen to it. I think book one is like 45 minutes and book two is like a half hour. Just listen to it. And uh, it's real edifying and there's a lot, it's very dense, there's a lot in there. But in addition to the learning aspect or the enriching aspect of it is actually any young podcasters, or even if you've been podcasting or putting out content for a long time, you can actually use the handbook one, the Academy of Liberation handbook one and two as a reference for your own podcast, because there's a lot of, uh, I've listed a lot of the speakers that I listen to and the books that I've read and movies that I've watched and the my thought patterns and the way I, my perception of reality and the best way to navigate through this, uh, through this life. And I've put it all down in there. So again, a quick reference, it's, it's organized in a way that you can find what you're looking for really quick reference back to it. And, uh, even if you have a person that doesn't, is not really advanced in, in, in the realm of, uh, providing content or putting information out there in a structured way, because yeah, you have a lot of guys that have the fart joke podcasts and beer drinking and all that, which is cool. You know, I, I like my uh, funny stuff too. I, I always say it on this podcast. One of my favorite shows is adult swim. It's a show by the name of delocated with uh, this character named John. And it's like the stupidest show ever, but it's probably one of the funniest shows ever either. And I guess the, the way what I'm trying to say is the guy's pretty much a comedic genius the way uh, he's written the show because it's just so funny. If you like obscure humor, go check it out. It's uh, it's called Delocated Adult Swim. You could find little clips of it on YouTube and such. But anyway, I, I digress as I always do. Um, yeah, you can you can actually use this as a blueprint for yourself and for your own content. So reach out to me and uh, I can make that available. So let's move on. Uh, past, uh, actually not past couple of weeks, I've been listening to podcasts since they first came out. I can remember, I, actually I was listening to podcasts before they even existed. And what do I mean by that? I, I don't even remember what year it was. It's probably 14 years ago, 15 years ago. Joe Rogan uh, had a website and on the website, I don't even remember how I got around to listening to him, but he he had a website, and on his website, he had these little MP3 clips of him and Brian, uh, his sidekick, the guy that really got him into the podcasting, actually, were saying jokes and just dropping different type of uh, things about you know, the moon landing and different things like that. And I would click on it and listen to them. And he probably had about 10 or 15 clips on there. Brian Redband is the guy's name. Uh, and I would listen to it. And they had snowflakes in the background and such, you know, on the website. And it was pretty funny. And this this was not a podcast. These were MP3 files that were clickable on his webpage. And then shortly after that, Brian Redband, uh, I can remember listening to it. Brian Redband said to a Joe, Hey, you know, there's this new thing that Apple has because that's when the iPod first came out and they had a thing that's called podcasting where you have a file and you can listen to it in episode sequence and such, you know, the whole thing, the way podcasts are now. And uh, Joe Rogan jumped right on it right away because I can remember listening to him speaking on 
his website on the little MP3 clips, and he was talking about this comedian named Dane Cook. And what Dane Cook ended up doing was when, I was it Facebook or, not Facebook, it was MySpace. So Joe Rogan was talking about how when uh, Dane Cook was coming up, he discovered MySpace and he started posting on MySpace and he just blew up. He ended up, you know, growing tenfold, selling out shows and everything. And I could hear Joe Rogan's thought process as he was. I mean, I don't know if you can go back that far into his podcast, but whatever, I'm, I'm telling it to you now. But he, this is the way it went down. And you could hear his uh, Joe Rogan's thought process as he was talking about Dane Cook going on MySpace. And Joe Rogan was saying, wow, that Dane Cook, you know, he's really smart. He just jumped on that MySpace immediately and knew how to utilize it. And you could hear the wheels turning. So when Brian Redband, this is strategy, you know, this is different types of strategy. But when Brian Redband brought up this podcasting thing, Joe just jumped on it, man. And you see where he's at right now. And I can remember back in the day listening to Joe Rogan and people would make fun of me and say, hey, oh, what are you listening to? That is so stupid or whatever. But I've always had a, an immense degree of respect for Joe Rogan and his podcast and the content he puts out because um, the, guy, the guy really knows how to connect the dots. So now that we're on that uh, note of connecting dots, uh, man, I flew off on a tangent there. Um, I've been listening, to, especially like lately, I've been listening to different podcasts and shows. The one thing that I'm noticing is a lot of content providers, a lot of podcasters haven't really been putting out a lot of content at all. A lot of the ones that I listen to. And the other thing that I'm noticing is there's a lot of, and you know, just take it the way it is, but there's a lot of podcasts out there that are basically just word salads. You know, it might be a spiritual podcast and they just say all the right buzzwords about, you know, contemplating on your navel and drinking spring water at 72 degrees while eating, you know, asparagus sprouts. But they're not feeding you. They're not really um, not edifying you. And it's basically them carrying on with this, you know, join my Patreon and that that's basically what it is i mean this is you know this is what i'm giving to you and you know what can you give to me but the one thing that you have to be very aware of is when you're listening to and i don't want to shit on anybody that you know has patreons or supporters and stuff like that because you know there are some uh providers out there that give exceptional content and a lot of value and you know if you want to support them or whatever I, you know it's actually a good idea because this is something they're feeding you and you're you know you're returning the favor to them and supporting them so they can provide up more more content you know so i'm listening to them and they're just carrying on and on and it's like i don't know I, I, again the best way i can phrase it it's like a word salad so be careful what you listen to if, you, if you're looking for just some you know quick and dirty entertainment, you know, some uh, white noise in the background while you're mowing your lawn or doing whatever, you know, that's that's good and fine. But the sad thing is you get some people that are really looking for directions and teachings and stuff like that, and they're listening to some guy, and they might be new at this and they don't really know. And not to say that they're wasting their time, but basically they're wasting their time listening to some of this content that's out there. So... Be very careful of the content that uh, you consume 
and be very careful of what you read and the shows that you watch and and divide them into two categories whether you know category one is just for fun and just for entertainment which is cool and then category number two is when you're actually looking to expand your mind and and uh, learn and grow on your path so just again be very careful of what you're consuming out there whether it be movies or podcasts or television shows just be 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 aware of that because listen carefully to their words and you'll you'll be able to tell right away um you know it's like as you listen to them speak it kind of pokes here and pokes there and you're going you know you're following these different breadcrumbs that they're dropping but in actuality all you see is that you're following a path of uh, pissed on breadcrumbs, you know, breadcrumbs that have already been pissed on and are leading you actually to no destination and nowhere and with no conclusion. You know, the way you can tell that you're listening to a speaker that um, is really feeding you is the fact that at the end of listening to it, you have a little nugget of information or knowledge of something that you didn't have before, or he reinforced some beliefs that you've already had. And you're saying to yourself, well, okay, I, I get that. And you kind of make a little mental note of that. So just, just food for thought. Um, you know what? I had a whole bunch of notes that uh, I had planned for this episode, but the, like I said, the main thing that I just wanted to drop on this episode was, uh, the Academy of Liberation handbook one and the Academy of Liberation book number two, uh, written by, uh, Miguel, uh, the host of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I appreciate all of you guys' support. Reach out to me. Uh, you know, I'll send you the book. Tell me what you think about it. Uh, you know, and, and also another thing, if you if you're a fledgling podcaster or somebody that wants to step up your podcasting game, I'm very good at social media and video editing and graphics and doing memes and stuff like that. I mean, I feel I'm I feel I'm decent. You know what I mean? And I think my strong point really is conceptually. I have really good ideas. If you look at my different contents out there, you'll see that I'm pretty well rounded. I don't have uh, anybody that I work with. I don't pay anyone. I do everything on my own. I kind of do it on the side for fun. Uh, I, I do it for fun, and I actually do it because um, I feel that it's my responsibility that I've. Um, acquired all of this knowledge and information through my life experience and studies. And, and what I need to do is pass that along to people uh, so it can help them because I've had people pass information on to me that has helped me. So it's my karmic debt to pass it on to other people so that it can help them. So I'm going to leave it right there. Um, I also want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. Uh, with all of this uh, darkness and evil that's going on in this world, the one thing that you definitely want to do is be aware of that one leash controlling a thousand necks and the way out of this suffering and the way out of this mental enslavement is the path of self-realization and the path of liberation and also acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or whatever uh, belief system that you do follow. Okay. So again, I do want to thank you for listening and praise Jesus name. And in closing, I'm going to play a little clip, sound clip, which is a dialogue on the book, The Tao Te Ching, where the speaker gets into his interpretation of the Tao, and it's it's pretty profound. So that's, that's here. And again, thank you for listening, and uh, praise Jesus' name. The 81 short chapters known as the Tao Te Ching 
have been translated more often than any other book in the world, with the single exception of the Bible. Like the Bible, the Tao Te Ching is a book whose appeal is as broad as its meaning is deep. It speaks to each of us at our own level of understanding, while inviting us to search for levels of insight and experience that are not yet within our comprehension. As with every text that deserves to be called sacred, it is a half-silvered mirror. To read it is not only to see ourselves as we are, but to glimpse a greatness extending far beyond our knowledge of ourselves and the universe we live in. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. These words are among the most famous in all the literature of the world. They were first offered, however, not to modern Western people like ourselves who, approaching the 21st century, are ready to admit that we have given too much place to discursive thought and rationalism. They were spoken some 2,500 years ago to a people and in a place, ancient China, far, far removed from us. Any work of art that communicates so enduringly over such enormous reaches of time and cultural diversity addresses, we may be sure, the essence of human nature and the human condition, rather than socio-cultural aspects that are peculiar to this or that society. The Tao Te Ching deals with what is permanent in us. It speaks of a possible inner greatness and an equally possible inner failure, which are both indelibly written into our very structure as human beings. Under its gaze we are not American or Chinese or European. We are that being, man, uniquely called to occupy a precise place in the cosmic order, no matter where or in what era we live. The Tao Te Ching is thus a work of metaphysical psychology, taking us far beyond the social or biological factors that have been the main concern of modern psychology. It helps us to see how the fundamental forces of the cosmos itself are mirrored in our own individual inner structure, and it invites us to try to live in direct relationship to all these forces. To see truly and to live fully, this is what it means to be authentically human. But it is extremely challenging, and this challenge was apparently as difficult for the men and women of ancient China as it is for us. We, too, try in vain to live full lives without understanding what it means to see. We, too, presume to act, to do, to create, without opening ourselves to a vision of ultimate reality. This opening and the way to experience it are what the Tao Te Ching is about. Historical information about the text and its author is scant and cloaked in legend. Even the little information we have is at every point subject to dispute by scholars. Although many are willing to accept that Lao Tzu was a real person born in what is now known as the Honan province in China some six centuries before the Christian era. Tradition has it that Confucius once journeyed to see Lao Tzu and came away amazed and in awe of the man. According to the tale, Confucius described his meeting with Lao Tzu in the following way. 
I know a bird can fly, a fish can swim, an animal can run. For that which runs, a net can be made. For that which swims, a line can be made. For that which flies, a corded arrow can be made. But the dragon's ascent into heaven on the wind and the clouds is something which is beyond my knowledge. Today I have seen Lao Tzu, and he is a dragon. The tale also tells that Lao Tzu was the keeper of the imperial archives at the ancient capital of Luoyang. Seeing the imminent decay of the society he lived in, he resolved to ride away alone into the desert, but at the Hanku Pass he was stopped by a gatekeeper named Yin Shi, who knew of his reputation for wisdom and who begged him to set down in writing the essence of his teaching. Thus, the legend tells us, the Tao Te Ching came into being. Legend aside, there is no doubt about the immense importance of this text in the history of China and the Orient. The figure of Lao Tzu and his writings are revered by followers of the Taoist religion, and the message of the Tao Te Ching has been one of the major underlying influences in Chinese thought and culture for more than 2,000 years. Throughout the world, when one thinks of the greatest spiritual figures in the history of mankind, Lao Tzu is placed alongside Christ, Gautama Buddha, Moses, and Muhammad. Some remarks about the language of this work may be of help at this point. The word Tao has been characterized as untranslatable by nearly every modern scholar. But this statement should not lead us to imagine that the meaning of the Tao was any more easily understood by the contemporaries of Lao Tzu. It would be more to the point to say, only half-jokingly, that the word Tao and even the whole of the Tao Te Ching is not readily translatable into any language, including Chinese. My words are easy to understand and easy to perform, wrote Lao Tzu, yet no man under heaven knows them or practices them. The present translation generally leaves the word Tao in Chinese. Those who have sought an equivalent in Western languages have almost invariably settled on way or path. Metaphysically, the term Tao refers to the way things are. Psychologically, it refers to the way human nature is constituted, the deep dynamic structure of our being. Ethically, it means the way human beings must conduct themselves with others. Spiritually, it refers to the guidance that is offered to us, the methods of searching for the truth that have been handed down by the great sages of the past, the way of inner work. Yet all these meanings of Tao are ultimately one. In this work, we are offered a vision that relates the flowing structure of the universe to the structure of our individual nature, both in itself and as it manifests itself in the details of our everyday actions in the world. No linguistic or philosophic analysis of this word can ever capture its essential meaning, because what is being referred to is an experience that can only be understood at the moment it is tasted with the whole of our being simultaneously sensed, felt, and thought.
and because this way of experiencing is entirely different from the way almost all of us act and think and feel in our usual lives. To say that the realization of metaphysical truth lies in the opposite direction from the way we usually experience our lives is not to say that a different method of thinking or experiencing is required. What is at issue is nothing less than the activation of an entirely new power within us, an entirely new movement of consciousness. The point is that man is built to receive, contain, and transform this power, and then to make his life a complete expression of it. Nothing else can bring ultimate fulfillment into human life, and yet our lives are lived with little awareness or contact with this force of consciousness. We work, we love, we struggle, we eat, sleep, and dream. We write books and create art. We even worship our gods closed off from it. This is why every sacred teaching in the history of mankind begins as a revolution, incomprehensible, paradoxical, mysterious. Whether it be the gnomic teaching of Lao Tzu, whoever he was and if he was, or the profoundly troubling doctrine of unknowing brought by Socrates, or the exalted hidden God speaking through Moses and the prophets of Israel, or the shattering sacrifice of love transmitted by Jesus, every sacred teaching remains sacred only as long as it opens a path that has never before been opened and yet always exists and must always exist for humanity. Look, it cannot be seen, it is beyond form. Listen, it cannot be heard, it is beyond sound. Grasp, it cannot be held, it is intangible. It is called indefinable and beyond imagination. Stand before it and there is no beginning. Follow it and there is no end. Stay with the ancient Tao. Move with the present. Of equal importance in approaching this text and the life it calls us to is the word de. This word directs our attention to the question of the expression or manifestation in our day-to-day -day lives of the supreme reality. The present text, following numerous other translations, renders de by the English word virtue. But we must be careful not to bring our ordinary moralistic associations to this term. It is true that the word de introduces us to the ethical dimension of this teaching, but this is ethics that is solidly rooted in metaphysics and completely separate from ethics considered as the rules of social morality which vary from culture to culture, epoch to epoch, nation to nation, class to class. De refers to nothing less than the quality of human action that allows the central creative power of the universe to manifest through it. As Lao Tzu writes, Something mysteriously formed, born before heaven and earth, in the silence and the void, standing alone and unchanging, ever-present and in motion. Perhaps it is the mother of ten thousand things. I do not know its name. Call it Thou. 
For lack of a better word, I call it great. Being great, it flows. It flows far away. Having gone far, it returns. The picture before us is of a cosmic force or principle that expands or flows outward, or, more precisely perhaps, descends into the creation of the universe, the ten thousand things. Together with this, we are told of a force or movement of return. All of creation returns to the source, but the initial coming into being of creation is to be understood as a receiving of that which flows downward and outward from the center. Every created entity ultimately is what it is and does what it does owing to its specific reception of the energy radiating from the ultimate formless reality. This movement from the nameless source to the ten thousand things is death. And the unique being, man, called here the king, is created to receive this force consciously and is called to allow his actions to manifest that force. Such conscious receiving in human life is virtue. Thus, the movement that leads back toward the source is also the opening toward great action in outer life. Virtue is an opening rather than a doing. In sum, Lao Tzu distinguished human virtue from what we ordinarily consider moral action by the cosmic nature of the force that human virtue manifests. Great action for Lao Tzu is action that conducts the highest and subtlest conscious energy. Ordinary moral action is, on the contrary, a manifestation whose source is lower down in the vast chain of being as it is portrayed in chapter 25. Thou, heaven, earth, the king, or man. The ego, our ordinary initiator of action, is an ephemeral construction which is formed by factors operating far beneath the level of the source, and which, in the unenlightened state of awareness, represents a kind of blockage or impediment to the interplay of fundamental cosmic forces. In other words, because of our identification of ourselves with the ego, what we ordinarily call action or doing, in fact, cuts us off from the complete reception of conscious energy in our bodies and actions. This idea must inevitably sound revolutionary, overthrowing the value we place on socially constructed systems of morality and efficiency. For the point is not only what we do, but the source from which we do it. The metaphysical nature of that source determines the ethical, cognitive, and pragmatic value of all human action, that is, the goodness, truth, and practicality of what we do in our life on earth. Our primary and perhaps only true responsibility is to become individuals who are also conduits for the supreme creative power of the universe. All other responsibilities for knowing the truth, for feeling the good, and for accomplishing what is useful and effective must flow from this in our external world, in our day-to-day -day lives, and within the recesses of our psychological makeup. 
In the ancient traditions of the West, this idea has been known as the doctrine of man as microcosm. In Christian and Jewish mysticism, in the philosophy of Plato and the Hermetic tradition, in Islamic esotericism, we find this idea pouring forth in an endless symphony of symbolic forms and profoundly articulated ideas. In the Tao Te Ching, it is offered to us as a whisper. Thus, respect of Tao and honor of virtue are not demanded, but they are in the nature of things. Therefore, all things arise from Tao. By virtue they are nourished, developed, cared for, sheltered, comforted, grown, and protected, creating without claiming, doing without taking credit, guiding without interfering. This is primal virtue. We are now in a position to consider what for many of us is the most compelling aspect of the Tao Te Ching, namely the putting into practice of its teaching. The metaphysical doctrine now stands before us in outline, an unformed, ungraspable, pure conscious principle lies at the heart and origin of all things. It is referred to as the Tao. This principle moves, expands, descends into form, creating the hierarchically, organically ordered cascade of worlds and phenomena called the Ten Thousand Things, or simply the Great Universe. And this movement, especially as it can move through humanity, is called De, virtue. At the same time, there is a great tide of return to the source, back toward the undifferentiated, pure reality of the uncarved block. This movement is also termed Tao. Finally, the supreme whole comprised of both movements is also given the designation Tao. Man is built to be an individual incarnation of this whole. His good, his happiness, the very meaning of his life is to live in correspondence and relationship to the whole, to be and act precisely as the universe itself is and moves. The question before us now is, how? The Tao Te Ching offers a powerful and practical answer, describing in almost every chapter this way of living, also known as Tao, the way. The secret of living, according to the Tao Te Ching, is to open within ourselves to the great flow of fundamental forces that constitute the ultimate nature of the universe, both the movement that descends from the source and the movement of return. Thus Lao Tzu writes, Empty yourself of everything. Let the mind become still. The ten thousand things rise and fall while the self watches their return. They grow and flourish and then return to the source. Returning to the source is stillness, which is the way of nature. Expressions like this show us why the Tao Te Ching has assumed such great popularity at the present moment. There is a widely shared realization that modern man has arrogantly and foolishly believed in science, a product largely of the intellect alone and not of the whole man, as an instrument 
for imposing his will upon nature. And, in the relationships among peoples, Europeans and Americans have often assumed the right to impose their values and desires upon peoples whose lives have not yet based themselves on the technological applications of science. As for Western religion, the Judeo-Christian tradition has sometimes been perceived, rightly or wrongly, as supporting this general tendency in the psychological sphere, especially insofar as it presents a fierce moral demand, a commandment that the individual override his own instinctive emotional nature and conform his life to standards that suffocate the vital forces within the body and the heart of every human being. There is nothing new in this reaction against what is perceived as the tyranny of an intellectualist and puritanical value system. Our culture heard it in the early criticism of the Industrial Revolution, in the work of Blake, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche, to name only a few. The first half of the twentieth century has seen aspects of it in the psychoanalytic movement, which sought to open our awareness to the forces of organic nature within us, and in the writings of the existentialists, who called for the recognition of a radical inner freedom unfixed and undetermined by any laws, cosmic or societal. Finally, in recent years, we have witnessed the growing interest in mysticism and Eastern religion, which, despite some highly publicized bizarre concomitants, has introduced powerful new ideas into the currents of Western thought. Chief among them, perhaps, is the idea of the states of human consciousness and the suggestion that the whole of our lives, individually and collectively, proceeds in a diminished state of consciousness, far from the capacities that would be possible were we to live at the level of consciousness that is natural to us. It is this last claim that can sound a truly new note for most people, and that provides the context in which the Tao Te Ching can speak in a stunning, fresh way about the practical question of how to search and how to live. Once the immensity of the idea of levels of consciousness is felt, the message of the Tao Te Ching soars beyond social and philosophical criticism of our culture. We find ourselves in front of a teaching about nature and naturalness that compels us to see even our very legitimate current concerns about the environment and our planet in a way that is far more immediate and at the same time far more inclusive than we might ever have imagined. And we shall see that the same holds true for other urgent issues of our time, including the problem of war, the crisis of leadership, and the man-woman relationship. To understand the practical importance of the idea of nature and naturalness contained in the Tao Te Ching, there is perhaps no better place to start than with the phrase that has become such a part of our contemporary vocabulary that it has assumed the status of a cliché and even a joke, to go with the flow. Do these words in their popular use mean the same thing as living according to the Tao? Certainly not. The distortions of this phrase that have become popular 
suggest an unthinking passivity along with a naive trust in the flow of outer events. But it is also a distortion to equate the ideal of living in accord with the Tao with simply obeying one's inner emotional and physical desires, as well as one's hidden intellectual prejudices. The point here is well illustrated by an exchange between the Zen master Shunryu Suzuki and his American pupils. Suzuki Roshi says, There is a big misunderstanding about the idea of naturalness. Most people who come to us believe in some freedom or naturalness, but their understanding is what we call Jinen Ken Gedo, or heretical naturalness, a kind of let-alone policy or sloppiness. For a plant or stone, to be natural is no problem. But for us there is some problem, indeed a big problem. To be natural is something we must work on. Suzuki's further comments lead us to consider the ideas of non-being, Wu, and non-action, Wu Wei, which are central to the practical teaching of the Tao Te Ching. He goes on to speak of Nyu Nan Shin, a smooth, natural mind. When you have that, he says, you have the joy of life. When you lose it, you lose everything. You have nothing. Although you think you have something, you have nothing. But when all you do comes out of nothingness, then you have everything. This is what we mean by naturalness. Or, in the words of Lao Tzu, Tao abides in non-action, yet nothing is left undone. If kings and lords observed this, the ten thousand things would develop naturally. If they still desired to act, they would return to the simplicity of formless substance. To be natural, therefore, is not easy. Inwardly, it involves a state of openness or receptivity that is subtle, elusive, and active. It means becoming aware of that supreme creative power which, as has been said, human beings were created to contain and express. Or, from another angle, one might equally say that to be natural is easy, but we have become such unnatural beings that to open to this force is the most difficult thing in the world. It requires of us an effort that is wholly unlike anything we understand as effort, even including what is ordinarily called relaxation. Similarly, our understanding of nature as an external reality invites reconsideration. Our perception of nature is relative to the quality of mind or attention that serves as our instrument of cognition. We see only things, entities, events. We do not directly experience the forces and laws that govern nature and the cosmos. In the words of Lao Tzu, Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one sees the manifestations. Let us note, a mind governed by desires can perceive only the world of appearances. What exists behind these appearances can be known only by the mind that exists behind the desires in ourselves. Let us further note, 
Just as the universe contains the ten thousand things, creatures, worlds, stars, stones, so does our mind contain its own ten thousand things, namely desires, impulses, fears, and sensations, and the thoughts, logically connected or not, that serve them. Thus a mind that is full of content knows a universe that is full of things. To go behind the apparent universe requires that we go behind the apparent mind. This may be called opening to non-being. At the same time, what Lao Tzu called non-being is a force of irresistible ultimate power. It is most certainly not nothing in the usual sense of that word, nor is it existence in the usual sense of the word. Similarly for ourselves, what lies beneath the glittering surface of our mind or ordinary sense of self are not simply other fabulous things, such as the psychological black holes that modern psychology has revealed to us under the designation of the unconscious. What lies behind the ten thousand things, or, to use Western language, behind the appearances in ourselves and in the universe, is not another world, another thing or collection of things, not new stars, planets, or black holes, not new desires, sensations, or insights. What lies behind the ten thousand things is the awareness of the ten thousand things. What lies behind the ego is the awareness of the ego. But this awareness, what is it? We cannot say. Call it Tao. The other world, the real world out there and in here, is simply this world, illumined with the inconceivably powerful and subtle energy of consciousness, which we perhaps are beginning to recognize as love itself. Love. Our Western civilization has always needed that word, and no doubt still needs it. Speaking against those who would reduce the great Judaic revelation to a system of formal commandments, external demands, and legalistic rulings, the prophets of Israel arose as the hidden voice of conscience conducting the message of inwardness to the feelings of a nation. The shock of the prophetic voice was continually covered over by fear and egoism and the thinking that served these weaknesses. My thoughts are not your thoughts, God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah. I hate, I despise your feast days, God tells Israel through Amos. Again and again God calls on Israel to open inwardly to the ultimate mystery that sends its love continuously toward humanity and through humanity to the world we are meant to live in, what we call earth. And throughout centuries, what we clumsily call Jewish mysticism speaks only of the need for humanity to receive, to open, to become like a woman toward the fatherhood of the ultimate mystery. The word Kabbalah literally means the receiving. Following the great line of prophets, there then appeared another prophet, or was he more than a prophet? Again, but with the unfathomable newness, gentleness, and power of the highest energy, 
the message of love is given. And a life is lived, a death is lived on the cross, the shattering reverberations of which are still unfolding in our world. A sacrifice is offered, a gift is given, and humanity is confronted with the grievous truth that we are unable to accept that gift. We must work and struggle with a kind of effort totally new and unknown to receive the gift in the tissues of our being. We must set aside all that tense doing we call action. We must become female, just as creation itself arises as the mother of the ten thousand things. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of ten thousand things. Female is all that receives and brings to birth. We are built to receive all the energies of creation in our consciousness, and through the mysterious activity of watchful silence, to allow them to gestate and unfold in the fullness of time. A great country, writes Lao Tzu, is like low land. It is the meeting ground of the universe, the mother of the universe. The female overcomes the male with stillness, lying low in stillness. Lao Tzu's teaching about the female is bound to be of great interest in contemporary culture. However, there is no question here of direct application to any social or political issue having to do with the rights of women. It is purely and solely a question of the nature of humanness itself. What is a human being anterior to the division into man and woman? The point is that a human being can only act, that is, move outward, in a manner that is specifically human to the extent that he or she can receive the gift of energy being poured out from the source. We are destined to be beings in which the primal two are in conscious, harmonious relationship. We are beings of two movements. It is our exalted but immensely difficult task to find the sensitivity and openness that is the great movement of return designated by the word silence at the same time that we function outwardly, think, play, fight, and create in the rough and tumble vortex of life on earth. The male moves out. The female returns. The male speaks. The female is silent. The male knows. The female is that is to say, our speech must be rooted in silence. Our movement must be permeated by stillness. Thus Lao Tzu, carrying body and soul and embracing the one, can you avoid separation? Opening and closing the gates of heaven, can you play the role of woman? There is a tendency in some contemporary scholarship to offer modernistic psychological and political reasons for the prejudice against women in the history of religion and culture throughout the world. No doubt these speculations are valid in many cases, and at their level. But, insofar as the female designates a universal metaphysical energy, a movement of opening and return, 
it is simply inevitable that the female becomes that which is forgotten, that which is not understood. Inevitable, that is, granted the fallen nature of humanity, our disconnection from the authentic possibilities of our life. In the ancient Chinese idea of yin and yang, yin is associated with ideas of the female as darkness, death, dissolution, everything that is complementary to yang as male, bright, creational, outpouring. No greater mistake can be made than to equate the female with mere emotions or so-called intuitions. The emotional function in unenlightened men and women, in us, is as little open to the higher as the actional function in unenlightened individuals is an outward expression of the higher creative energy. The creation pours down in light and in accordance with rigorous laws of unfolding. It is uncompromising in its action, and it does not care for things in a manner that follows our limited and egoistically fantastic standards. Pautze writes, Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the ten thousand things as straw dogs. Similarly, no greater mistake can be made than to equate the male, the positive active force of the cosmos, with mere thinking or so-called rationality. Thus yin accords as little with historically conditioned concepts of the feminine as yang accords with historically conditioned concepts of the masculine. Seen in this way, both the male and the female force are hidden from us in our unenlightened state of consciousness. It requires a precise practice of meditation to become aware of energies as such and to observe for oneself the laws of their interaction and unfolding movement. This inner practice reveals that all phenomena everywhere depend upon the harmonious relationship of these forces called yin and yang, female and male, return and expression. To be fully human is to develop a power of attention that allows this relationship to take place within one's own psychophysical organism. A man in whom this attention is highly developed is called a sage, an enlightened human being, although here too there are levels and degrees of inner attainment. As has been suggested, the study that leads to the emergence of this consciousness within ourselves is known as the path. Tao understood as the way of inner spiritual practice. We have just introduced the term meditation. Setting aside most contemporary meanings of this word, we may characterize meditation as the process of becoming familiar with one's own real structure as a human being. Certain definite conditions such as physical posture and mental attitude have in every spiritual tradition been presented as necessary supports for this process. The Tao Te Ching does not offer this kind of advice apart from the mental attitude so powerfully communicated by the text. In fact, the most important features of the technical aspect of meditation can never be written down. The practice of meditation requires direct personal guidance 
of an exceedingly delicate sort, and as such constitutes a central aspect of the vast and all-important element of spiritual discipline known as the oral transmission. All effective spiritual transmission ultimately takes place directly between people. It can never be learned from a book. But important general and theoretical aspects of the practice can be expressed in words and images, and so, returning to the point at hand, we can say that one of the first truths discovered in the practice of meditation is that the movement of return, the movement back toward one's central self, is a subtle, elusive, and fleeting experience. It is constantly being overridden by the automatically acting aspects of the outward movement, especially the racing chaos of automatic thoughts. Even more subtle and elusive, yet of cardinal importance, is the experience of both forces together within oneself. The metaphysical symbol of this central experience is the yin-yang diagram as a whole. That experience is the knowledge and incarnation of the Tao considered as the whole of nature and of oneself as the whole. It is not the intention of this commentary to try to say more about such subtle experiences, but to focus on general theoretical aspects and implications. Nor is it the intention to try to introduce the teaching of the Tao Te Ching in the form of a system of philosophy. The chapters of the text are interrelated, but, as with every communication from a higher level of spirituality, the interrelation appears to us as replete with contradictions and disconnected images. There is bound to be confusion in our minds about the meanings of yin and yang, and about which sense of the Tao is being referred to in many of the chapters. We can say, however, that one stage of the work of meditation is to discriminate between the two forces, the movement of return and the movement outward. Another stage presupposing the experience of successive discrimination, is the simultaneous experience of both. A third stage would then be the experience of the moving together into a harmonious relationship of these two forces. That further stages exist there can be no doubt, but it is also certain that we are not in a position to speculate about them. At every stage of the practice, the truth one needs to experience is hidden and dark and bears the marks of death. This is the death of all that has been built up by the automatism of the mind and ego. It is the death of forms and the momentary release or appearance of a formless energy. The seeker must allow himself or herself to be the female in relation to that which is waiting to pour itself into the seeker from above, whether it be called truth or the ultimate energy. Thus Lao Tzu, yield and overcome, bend and be straight, empty and be full, wear out and be new, have little and gain, have much and be confused. Know the strength of man, but keep a woman's care. Know the white, but keep the black. Be the valley of the universe, being the valley 
of the universe, ever true and resourceful, return to the state of the uncarved block. The psychological condition of an individual who seeks in this way to experience both fundamental forces in himself must inevitably appear incomprehensible and even foolish to the unenlightened and to the unenlightened parts of our own minds, which are accustomed, one might even say addicted, to rationality and the imposition of concepts and forms onto the outer and inner life. Lao Tzu writes, But I alone am drifting, not knowing where I am. Like a newborn babe before it learns to smile, I am alone, without a place to go. Others have more than they need, but I alone have nothing. I am a fool, oh yes, I am confused. Other men are clear and bright, but I alone am dim and weak. Other men are sharp and clever, but I alone am dull and stupid. Oh, I drift like the waves of the sea, without direction, like the restless wind. Everyone else is busy, but I alone am aimless and depressed. I am different. I am nourished by the Great Mother. We may now consider the numerous verses of the Tao Te Ching that deal with the question of leadership, political and spiritual. Before citing examples, we need to emphasize the extraordinary difficulty and drama that awaits the individual seeking to embrace the yin and yang within himself. It is not for nothing that in the spiritual language of alchemy, this embrace under the name alchemical marriage, or the divine androgyne, is presented as the culmination of long and difficult work on oneself. It is a question of developing an attention of such strength and sensitivity that two fundamental cosmic forces, which at one level are intrinsically at war with each other, come together under an even greater force of reconciliation. War is transmuted into love. This reference to the language of Western alchemy may help us confront the political and military language that enters into the second part of the Tao Te Ching. Otherwise, it may be hopelessly puzzling that a text which so consistently speaks of gentleness and yielding suddenly begins speaking of warfare, generalship, armies, and military strategy. This aspect of the Tao Te Ching has led some modern interpreters to take it as a blueprint for achieving purposes completely alien to the goal of inner freedom, such as military conquest or even effective business management and sales programs. In any case, the Tao Te Ching does speak of struggle and discipline quite as much as it speaks of non-doing and letting go, as in fact do all the inner disciplines of the great spiritual teachings, East and West. It is an extraordinary task to make conscious contact with the energy that reconciles the two great movements of universal reality at the levels in which they operate within the whole of the human psyche. The exalted vision that has revealed the necessity for this in-between state is surely what lies at the heart of the middle way as it originally took form in the teachings of the Buddha. The same vision informs the esoteric Christianity of Meister Eckhart, 
the fathers of Byzantine Christianity, such as Gregory Palamas and Maximus the Confessor, and the Gnostic texts of early Christianity. It is the vision we find in the Jewish mystical writings known as the Zohar and the stories of the Baal Shem Tov and his spiritual descendants. It is, as was said, the central work of alchemy. It is Arjuna's warfare in the Bhagavad Gita, the spiritual combat of the Philokalia, the Zen Buddhist sword of the mind, the way of the warrior, as spoken of by Hakuin. To see the Tao's message as a permissive, passive, self-calming, going with the flow in the way some modern writers have, is to make a mere fantasy out of a profound, subtle doctrine that blends into one vision the truth of mercy and the truth of rigor, to use the language of the Kabbalah. To make non-doing into non-struggling is to be an advocate of what has become merely one of the world's great half-truths. It is possible to understand this teaching concerning the in-betweenness of inner freedom as lying at the root of the Western doctrines of moderation and sobriety that we find in the philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome. But when we consider the way this Western idea has come down to us, it too must be seen as a degeneration insofar as it directs us toward a kind of bourgeois metaphysics and psychology. Nothing in excess, as the Greeks and Romans expressed it, cannot at its root mean anything like the existential comfortableness or Puritanism it has come to signify. It must have originally emerged out of the same kind of doctrine we find in the Tao Te Ching and the countless other esoteric spiritual teachings of the world, namely, to struggle for an attention or consciousness that can embrace two opposite forces without being swallowed by either. It means living in the midst of both the forces of outer life and the forces of the mystical return while searching in oneself for the consciousness that is at the root and that stands as the reconciling fulfillment of both these movements. This war is love. This love is war. In the light of these comments, we can now look at what our text tells us about the art of living in the world and especially the practical art of leadership, what Plato spoke of both symbolically and literally as statesmanship. The question is how to live one's daily life in a way that supports and expresses this war of love, this struggle for contact, with the transcendently vibrant non-being, emptiness, and formless energy that lies at the heart of the human and the cosmic world. These verses, and those like them in the text, tell us something essential about how to govern and how to fight. The historic context of ancient Chinese society, its political strife and social unrest, cannot be ignored, but we must ask ourselves... To what extent do these verses teach us about how to achieve success in the forms by which society enables us to deal with each other? And to what extent do they give us an attitude toward these forms that enables us to seek within while we are compelled to move and act in the social context? To what extent are spiritual principles meant to serve social psychological goals 
And to what extent can social activity become the milieu in which we search for that which transcends society? Do we meditate in order to win? Or can we study the laws of pure inner work operating even within the outer battlefield of life? Lao Tzu writes, Therefore the stiff and unbending is the disciple of death. The gentle and yielding is the disciple of life. Thus an army without flexibility never wins a battle. A tree that is unbending is easily broken. The hard and strong will fall. The soft and weak will overcome. In the symbolic language of sacred writing, the outer and the inner are spoken of with images and formulations that embrace the laws of one's own inner world and the great outer world simultaneously. In this language, words such as leader, warrior, king, and sage refer both to an individual in relationship to other people and to a part of oneself in its relationship to other parts that make up one's total inner world. There is or can be a leader in myself, a warrior, king, and sage. There are armies and peoples within myself. There are desires, fears, hopes, needs. There are timid and brave impulses. There are thinkers, dreamers, scoundrels, and madmen within myself. In the Old Testament, these are the people of Israel whom Moses leads out of the state of slavery. These are the people of Plato's Republic whom the philosopher king rules with wisdom and justice. Like the Tao Te Ching, such texts are political in a much vaster and more intimate sense than we may imagine. To be a warrior in the outer life one must be a warrior in the inner life. To be a king in the outer life, one must be a king in the inner life. To be a sage in the outer life, one must be a sage in the inner life. Thus, when the Tao Te Ching cautions the ruler against imposing concepts of good and evil onto his people, it is also cautioning us against cutting ourselves off from the vital forces within ourselves through attachment to mental or emotional judging of ourselves. To read anything in the Tao Te Ching as merely advice for the outer life is, putting it bluntly, to desecrate it. That is, to pack it into our own store of illusions, the sum total of which has made our individual and collective life on earth a hypnotic sleep that could very well end with our eyes still closed. But to read it as applying simultaneously to the outer life and to our own inner life is to feel ourselves invited to a life of searching that will be supported by the strongest and greatest energies in the universe. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, 
And I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbead.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.